Appendix four, part five of On War, volumes two and three, by Carl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Determination of place. Four hundred and fifty. The determination of place answers the question where the combat is to be, as well for the whole as for the parts. Four hundred and fifty-one. The place of combat for the whole emanates from strategy with which we are not now concerned. We have only here to deal with the construction of the combat. We must, therefore, suppose that both parties have come into contact. The place of the combat will then generally be either where the enemy's army is, in the attack, or where we can wait for it, on the defensive. 452. As regards the determination of place for the members of the whole, it decides the geometrical form which the combatants on both sides should assume in the combat. 453. We leave out of sight at present the forms of detail which are contained in the regular, normal formation, which we shall consider afterwards. 454. The geometrical form of the whole may be reduced to two types, namely to the parallel and to that in concentric segments of circles. Every other form runs into one of these. 455. In fact, whatever parts are supposed to be in actual conflict must be supposed in parallel lines. If, therefore, an army should deploy perpendicularly to the alignment of the other, the latter must either change its front completely and place itself parallel with the other, or it must at least do so with a portion of its line. But in the latter case, the other army must then wheel round that portion of its line against which no part of the enemy's line has wheeled, if it is to be brought into use, and thus arises an order of battle in concentric pieces of circles or polygonal parts. 456. The rectilinear order is plainly to be considered as indifferent, for the relations of the two parties are precisely alike. 457. But we cannot say that the rectilinear form only arises from the direct and parallel attack, as appears at first sight. It may also take place by the defensive placing himself parallel to an oblique attack. In this case, the other circumstances will certainly not always be alike, for often the new position will not be good often it will not be quite carried out, etc. We now anticipate this only in order to guard against a confusion of ideas. The indifference which we see in this case lies only in the form of the order of battle. 458. The nature of the form in concentric segments of circles, or portions of polygons, which is the same, has already been sufficiently developed. It is the enveloping and the enveloped order. 459. The question of the placing of the parts in space would be fully settled by the geometrical form of the normal order of battle if it was necessary that some of our troops should be opposed to those of the enemy in every direction. This, however, is not necessary. It is much more a question in each particular case, should all parts of the enemy's line be engaged or not, and in the latter case, which. 460. If we can leave a part of the enemy's force unattacked, we become by that means stronger for the contest with the rest, either by the simultaneous or successive use of our forces, and by that means a part of the enemy's force may have to contend with the whole of our army. 461. Thus we shall either be completely superior to the enemy at the points at which we want our forces, or we shall at least have a stronger force than the general relations between the two armies would give. 462. But these points may be taken to represent the whole, provided that we need not engage the others. There is, therefore, an artificial augmentation of our forces, 
by a greater concentration of the same in space. 463. It is evident that this means forms a most important element in any plan of battle. It is that which is most generally used. 464. The point now is therefore to examine this subject closer in order to determine the parts of an enemy's force, which in this sense should be taken to constitute the whole. 465. We have stated in number 4 the motives which determine the retreat of one of the combatants in battle. It is plain that the circumstances from which these motives arise affect either the whole of the force or at least such an essential part of it as surpasses all the rest in importance and therefore carries them along with it in its fate. 466. That these circumstances affect the whole of the force we can easily conceive if the mass is small, but not if it is large. In such case, certainly, the motives given under D, F, G concern the whole, but the others, especially the loss, affect only certain parts, for with large masses it is extremely improbable that all parts have suffered alike. 467. Now, those parts whose condition is the cause of a retreat must naturally be considerable in relation to the whole. We shall, for brevity's sake, call them the vanquished. 468. These vanquished parts may either be contiguous to each other, or they may be more or less interspersed through the whole. 469. There is no reason to consider that one case is more decisive than the other. If one corps of an army is completely beaten, but all the rest intact, that may be in one case worse, in another better, than if the losses had been uniformly distributed over the whole army. 470. The second case supposes an equal employment of the opposing forces, but we are only occupied at present with the effect of an unequal application of forces, one that is concentrated more at a single or at certain points. We have, therefore, only to do with the first case. 471. If the vanquished parts are close to each other, they may be regarded collectively as a whole, and we mean it to be so understood when we speak of the divisions or points attacked or beaten. 472. If we can determine the situation and relation of that part, which dominates over and will carry the whole along with it in its fate, then we have by that means also discovered the part of the whole against which the forces intended to fight the real struggle must be directed. 473. If we leave out of sight all circumstances of ground, we have only position and magnitude, numbers, by which to determine the part to be attacked. We shall first consider the numbers. 474. Here there are two cases to be distinguished. The first, if we unite our forces against a part of the enemies and oppose none of the rest of his army. The second, if we oppose to the remaining part a small force merely to occupy it. Each is plainly a concentration of forces in space. 475. The first of these questions, viz. how large a part of the enemy's force we must necessarily engage, is evidently the same as how small can we make the width of our front. We have already discussed that subject in number 433 and following. 476. In order the better to explain the subject in the second case, we shall begin by supposing the enemy to be as positive and active as ourselves. It follows in such case that if we take steps to beat the smaller portion of his army with the larger fraction of our own, he will do the same on his side. 477. Therefore, if we would have the total result in our favour, we must so arrange that the part of the enemy's army, which we mean to defeat, shall bear a greater portion to his whole force than the portion of our force which we risk losing bears to the whole of our army. 478. If, for instance, we would employ in the principal action three-fourths of our force, 
and use one-fourth for the enemy's occupation on that part of the enemy's army not attacked, then the portion of the enemy's army which we engage seriously should exceed one-fourth, should be about one-third. In this case, if the result is for us on one side and against us on the other, still, with three-fourths of our force, we have beaten one-third of the enemy's, whilst he, with two-thirds of his, has only conquered one-fourth of ours. The advantage is, therefore, manifestly in our favour. 479. If we are so superior to the enemy in numbers that three-fourths of our force is sufficient to ensure us victory over half of his, then the total result would be still more to our advantage. 480. The stronger we are in numbers relatively, the greater may be that portion of the enemy's force which we engage seriously, and the greater will then be the result. The weaker we are, the smaller must be the portion seriously attacked, which is in accordance with the natural law that the weak should concentrate his forces the most. 481. But in all this it is tacitly supposed that the enemy is occupied as long in beating our weak division as we are in completing our victory over the larger portion of his force. Should this not be so, and that there is a considerable difference in time, then he might still be able to use a further part of his troops against our principal force. 482. But now, as a rule, a victory is gained quicker in proportion as the inequality between the contending forces is greater. Hence, we cannot make the force which we risk losing as small as we please. It must bear a reasonable proportion to the enemy's force, which it is to keep occupied. Concentration has, therefore, limits on the weaker side. 483. The supposition made in number 476 is, however, very seldom realised. Usually a part of the defender's force is tied to some locality, so that he is not able to use the lex talionis as quickly as is necessary. When that is the case, the assailant in concentrating his forces may even somewhat exceed the above proportion, and if he can beat one-third of the enemy's force with two-thirds of his, there is still a probability of success for him in the total result, because the remaining one-third of his force will hardly get into difficulty to an equal degree. 484. But it would be wrong to go further with this train of reasoning and draw the conclusion that if the defensive took no positive action at all against the weaker portion of the assailant's force, a case which very often happens, victory would likewise follow in that case also in favour of the assailant, for in cases in which the party attack does not seek to indemnify himself on the weaker portion of the enemy's force, the chief reason for not doing so is because he has still the means of making the victory of our principal force doubtful by bringing into action against it a portion of that part of his army which has not been attacked. 485. The smaller the portion of the enemy's force is which we attack, the more possible this becomes, partly on account of spaces and distance being less, partly and more especially because the moral power of victory over a smaller mass is so very much less. If the mass of the enemy's force which is conquered is small, he does not so soon lose head and heart to apply his still remaining means to the work of restoration. 486. It is only if the enemy is in such a position that he is neither able to do the one nor the other, that is, neither to indemnify himself by a positive victory over our weaker portion, nor to bring forward his spare forces to oppose the principal attack, or, if irresolution prevents him from doing so, that then the assailant can hope to conquer him with even a relatively small force by means of concentration. 487. Theory must not, however, leave it to be inferred that it is the defender only who is subject to the disadvantage of not being able to indemnify himself properly for the concentration of forces made by his adversary. It has also to point out that either of the two parties, either the assailant or the defender, may be involved in such a situation. 488. The assemblage of forces 
more than are proportionate at some point in order to be superior in numbers at that point is in point of fact always founded on the hope of surprising the enemy so that he shall neither have time to bring up sufficient forces to the spot nor to set on foot measures of retaliation the hope of the surprise succeeding founds itself essentially on the resolution being the earliest made that is on the initiative 489 but this advantage of the initiative has also again its disadvantage of which more will be said hereafter we merely remark here that it is no absolute advantage the effects of which must show themselves in all cases 490 but if we even leave out of consideration the grounds for the success of an intended surprise which are contained in the initiative so that no objective motive remains and that success has nothing on its side but luck still even that is not to be rejected in theory for war is a game from which it is impossible to exclude venture it therefore remains allowable in the absence of all other motives to concentrate a part of our forces on a venture in the hope of surprising the enemy with them 491 if the surprise succeeds on either side whether it be the offensive or defensive side which succeeds there will follow a certain inability on the part of the force surprised to redress itself by a retaliatory stroke 492 as yet we have been engaged in the consideration of the proportions of the part or point to be attacked we now come to its position 493 if we leave out every local and other particular circumstance then we can only distinguish the wings flanks rear and centre as points which have peculiarities of their own 494 the wings because there we may turn the enemy's force 495 the flanks because we may expect to fight there upon a spot on which the enemy is not prepared and to impede his retreat 496 the rear just the same as the flanks only that the expectation of obstructing or completely intercepting his retreat is here more predominant 497 but in this action against flanks and rear the supposition is necessarily implied that we can compel the enemy to oppose forces to us there when we are not certain that our appearance there will have this effect the measure becomes dangerous for where there is no enemy to attack we are inactive and if this is the case with the principal body we should undoubtedly miss our object 498 such a case as that of an enemy uncovering his flanks and rear certainly occurs now very rarely still it does happen and most easily when the enemy indemnifies himself by offensive counter-enterprises wagram hohenlinden austerlitz are examples which may be quoted here 499 the attack of the centre by which we understand nothing else than a part of the front which is not a wing has this property that it may lead to a separation of parts which is commonly termed breaking the line 500 breaking the line is plainly the opposite of envelopment both measures in the event of victory have a very destructive effect on the enemy's forces but each in a different manner that is a envelopment contributes to certainty of the result by its moral effect in lowering the courage of the enemy's troops b breaking the centre contributes to ensure success by enabling us to keep our forces more united together we have already treated of both c the envelopment may lead directly to the destruction of the enemy's army if it is made with very superior numbers and succeeds if it leads to victory the early results are in every case greater by that means than by breaking the enemy's line d breaking the enemy's line can only lead indirectly to the destruction of his army and its effects are hardly shown so much on the first day but rather strategically afterwards 501 breaking through the enemy's army by massing our principal force against one point supposes an excessive length of front on the part of the enemy for in this form of attack the difficulty of occupying the remainder of the enemy's force with few troops 
is greater because the enemy's forces nearest to the principal attack may easily join in opposing it now in an attack on the centre there are such forces on both sides in an attack on a flank only on one side 502 the consequence of this is that such a central attack may easily end in a very disadvantageous form of combat through a convergent counter-attack 503 the choice therefore between these two points of attack must be made according to existing relations of the moment length of front the nature and direction of the line of retreat the military qualities of the enemy's troops and characteristics of their general lastly the ground must determine the choice we shall consider these subjects more fully in the sequel 504 we have supposed the concentration of forces at one point for the real attack but it may no doubt also take place at several points at two or three without ceasing to be a concentration of forces against a part of the enemy's force at the same time no doubt by every increase in the number of points the strength of the principle is weakened five hundred and five and yet we have only taken into view the objective advantages of such a concentration that is a more favourable relation of force at the capital point but there is also a subjective motive for the commander or general which is that he keeps the principal parts of his force more in hand 506 although in a battle the will of the general and his intelligence conduct the whole still this will and this intelligence can only reach the lower ranks much diluted and the further the troops are from the general-in-chief the more will this be the case the importance and independence of subordinates then increase and that at the expense of the supreme will 507 but it is both natural and as long as no anomaly arises also advantageous that the commander-in-chief should retain direct control to the utmost extent which circumstances will allow reciprocal action 528 in respect to the application of forces in combat we have now exhausted everything which can be deduced generally from the nature of those forces 509 we have only one subject still to examine which is the reciprocal action of the plans and acts of the two sides 510 as the plan of combat properly so called can only determine so much of the action as can be foreseen it limits itself usually to three things viz one the general outline two the preparations three the details of the commencement five hundred and eleven nothing but the commencement can in reality be laid down completely by the plan the progress demands new arrangements and orders proceeding from circumstances these are the conduct of the battle five hundred and twelve naturally it is desirable that the principles of the plan should be followed in the conduct for means and end always remain the same therefore if it cannot always be done we can only look upon that as an imperfection which cannot be avoided five hundred and thirteen the conduct of a battle is undeniably a very different thing to making a plan of one the latter is done out of the region of danger and in perfect leisure the former takes place always under the pressure of the moment the plan always decides things from a more elevated standpoint with a wider sphere of vision the conduct is regulated by indeed is often forcibly carried away by that which is the nearest and most individual we shall speak hereafter of the difference in the character of these two functions of the intelligence but here we leave them out of consideration and content ourselves with having drawn a line between them as distinct epochs five hundred and fourteen if we imagine both parties in this situation that neither of them knows anything of the dispositions of his opponent then each of them can only make his own comfortably with the general principles of theory a great part of this lies already in the formation and in the so-called elementary tactics of an army which are naturally founded on what is general five hundred and fifteen but it is evident 
that a disposition which rests only upon that which is general can never have the same efficacy with that which is built upon individual circumstances. 516. Consequently, it may be a very great advantage to combine our dispositions after the enemy and with reference to those of the enemy. It is the advantage of the second hand at cards. 517. Seldom, if ever, is a battle arranged without special regard to individual circumstances. The first circumstance, of which there must always be some knowledge, is the ground. 518. In knowledge of the ground, the defender has the advantage in general, in an especial degree, for he alone knows exactly and beforehand the spot on which the battle is to take place, and therefore has time to examine the locality fully. Here is the root of the whole theory of positions, in as far as it belongs to tactics. 519. The assailant certainly also examines the ground before the fight commences, but only imperfectly, for the defender is in possession of it, and does not allow him to make a full examination everywhere. Whatever he can, in some measure ascertain from a distance, serves him to lay down his plan. 520. If the defender, besides the advantage of the mere knowledge of the ground, makes another use of it, if he makes use of it for local defence, the result is more or less definite disposition of his forces in detail. By that means, his adversary may find out his plans and take them into account in making his own. 521. This is, therefore, the first calculation made on the enemy's actual moves. 522. In most cases, this is to be regarded as the stage at which the plans of both parties end. That which takes place subsequently belongs to the conduct. 523. In combats in which neither of the two parties can be considered as really the defender, because both advance to the encounter, formation, order of battle, and elementary tactics, as regular disposition, somewhat modified by ground, come in in place of a plan properly so called. 524. This happens very frequently with small bodies, seldomer with large masses. 525. But if action is divided into attack and defence, then the assailant, as far as respects reciprocal action, has evidently the advantage at the stage mentioned at number 522. It is true that he has assumed the initiative, but his opponent, by his defensive dispositions, has been obliged to disclose in great part what he means to do. 526. This is the ground on which, in theory, the attack has been hitherto considered as by far the most advantageous form of combat. 527. But to regard the attack as the most advantageous, or to use a more distinct expression, as the strongest form of combat, leads to an absurdity, as we shall show hereafter. This has been overlooked. 528. The error in the conclusion arises from overvaluing the advantage mentioned in number 525. That advantage is important in connection with the reciprocal action, but that is not everything. To be able to make use of the ground as an ally and thereby, to a certain extent, to increase our forces, is in very many cases of greater importance, and might be in most cases with proper dispositions. 529. But wrong use of ground, very extended positions, and a full system of defence, pure passivity, have no doubt given to the advantage which the assailant has of keeping his measures in the background an undue importance, and to these errors alone the attack is indebted for the successes which it obtains in practice beyond the natural measure of its efficacy. 530. As the influence of the intelligence is not confined to the plan properly so called, we must pursue our examination of the reciprocal action through the province of the conduct. 531. The course or duration of the battle is the province of the conduct of the battle, 
but this duration is greater in proportion as the successive use of forces is more employed. 532. Therefore, where much depends on the conduct, there must be a great depth in the order of battle. 533. Now arises the question whether it is better to entrust more to the plan or to the conduct. 534. It were evidently absurd knowing to leave unexamined any datum which may come to hand or leave it out of account in our deliberations if it has any value as regards the proposed course of action but that is as much to say that the plan should prescribe the course of action as far as there are available data and that the field of the conduct is only to commence when the plan no longer suffices the conduct is therefore only a substitute for a plan and so far is to be regarded as a necessary evil 535 but let it be quite understood we are only speaking of plans for which there are real motives dispositions which have necessarily an individual tendency must not be founded upon arbitrary hypothesis but upon regular data 536 where therefore data are wanting there the fixed dispositions of the plan should cease for it is plainly better that a thing should remain undetermined that is be placed under the care of general principles than that it should be determined in a manner not adapted to circumstances which subsequently arise 537 every plan which enters too much into detail of the course of the combat is therefore faulty and ruinous for detail does not depend merely on general grounds but on other particulars which it is impossible to know beforehand 538 when we reflect how the influence of single circumstances accidental as well as others increases with time and space we may see how it is that very wide and complex movements seldom succeed and that they often lead to disaster 539 here lies the chief cause of the danger of all very complex and elaborate plans of battle they are all founded often without its being known on a mass of insignificant suppositions a great part of which prove inexact 540 in place of unduly extending the plan it is better to leave rather more to the conduct 541 but this supposes according to 532 a deep order of battle that is strong reserves 542 we have seen open bracket 525 close bracket that as respect reciprocal action the attack reaches furthest in his plan 543 on the other hand the defensive through knowledge of the ground has many reasons to determine beforehand the course of his combat that is to enter far into his plan 544 were we to stop at this point of view we should say that the plans of the defensive reach much further into those of the offensive and that therefore the latter leaves much more to the conduct 545 but this advantage of the defensive only exists in appearance not in reality we must be careful not to forget that the dispositions which relate to the ground are only preparatory measures founded upon suppositions not upon any actual measures of the enemy 546 it is only because these suppositions are in general very probable and only when they are so that they as well as the dispositions based on them have any real value 547 but this condition attaching to the suppositions of the defender and the measures which he therefore adopts naturally limits these very much and compels him to be very circumspect in his plans and dispositions 548 if he has gone too far with them the assailant may slip away and then there is on the spot a dead power that is a waste of power 549 such may be the effect of positions which are too extended and the too frequent use of local defence 550 both these very errors have often shown the injury to the defender from an undue extension of his plan and the advantage which the offensive may derive from a rational extension of his 551 
only very strong positions give the plans of the defensive more scope than the plan of the assailant can have but they must be positions which are strong in every point of view 552 on the other hand in proportion as the position available is only indifferently good or that no suitable one is to be found or that time is wanting to prepare one in the same measure will the defender remain behind the assailant in the determination of his plans and have to trust the more to the conduct 553 this result therefore shows again that it is the defender who must more particularly look to the successive use of forces 554 we have seen before that only large masses can have the advantage of a narrow front and we may now perceive additional motives for the defender to guard himself against the danger of an undue extension of his plan a ruinous scattering of his forces on account of the nature of the ground and further that he should place his security in the aid which lies in the conduct that is in strong reserves 555 from this the evident deduction is that the relation of the defence to the attack improves in proportion as the masses increase 556 duration of the combat that is strong reserves and the successive use of them as much as possible constitute therefore the first condition in the conduct and the advantage of these things must bring with it the superiority in the conduct apart from the talent of him who applies them for the highest talent cannot be brought into full play without means and we may very well imagine that the one who is less skilful but has the most means at command gains the upper hand in the course of the combat 557 now there is still a second objective condition which confers in general an advantage in the conduct and this is quite on the side of the defensive it is the acquaintance with the country what advantage this must give when resolutions are required which must be made without examination and in the pressure of events is evident in itself 558 it lies in the nature of things that the determinations of the plan concern more the divisions of higher order and those of the conduct more the inferior ones consequently that each single determination of the latter is of lesser importance but as these latter are naturally much more numerous the difference in importance between the plan and conduct is by that means partly balanced 559 further it lies in the nature of the thing that reciprocal action has its own special field in the conduct and also that it never ceases there because the two parties are inside of each other and consequently that it either causes or modifies the greatest part of the dispositions 560 now if the defender is specially led by his interest to save up forces for the conduct number 553 if he has a general advantage in their use number 557 it follows that he can by superiority in the conduct not only make good the disadvantage in which he is placed by the reciprocal action out of the plans but also attain a superiority in the reciprocal action generally 561 whatever may be the relation in this respect between the opposing parties in particular cases up to a certain point there will always be an endeavour to be the last to take measures in order to be able when doing so to take those of the enemy into account 562 this endeavour is the real ground of the much stronger reserves which are brought into use in large armies in modern times 563 we have no hesitation in saying that in this means there is next to ground the best principle of defence for all considerable masses. End of Appendix 4, Part 5. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.